Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here with you for a little self-brain surgery Saturday today. I'm so grateful. Lisa and I and Tata are so honored and humbled that you've come along for the ride as we dig into the big questions of what do we do when life brings us trauma and tragedy and other massive things? How do we use our neuroscience? How do we use the mind and the brain that God created to help us find our feet and hold on to faith when we have faith and doubt and the things we think we know are challenged? And we're almost at a thousand episodes since I started this podcast back in 2014. And we're at a little bit of a branch point. As I told you yesterday, we're going to break off two shows now. Not not creating more work for myself, but just to give you episodes that you know exactly what you're going to get. On the spiritual side, we're going to have spiritual brain surgery episodes. That are, some of them are going to be our quiet times, our Bible studies, our prayer times, our Tuesdays with Tatas, things like that. Some of them are going to be guests that are more focused on spiritual, church-related things, spiritual growth, and, and your relationship with God, and prayer, and things that are not so sciencey but are more specifically related to our faith, and how do we hold on to faith when life gets hard. And then in the Dr. Lee Warren podcast, the Self-Brain Surgery podcast, we're going to continue this journey of smashing faith and science together. There's, there's no change in how we are going to attack the problem of holding on to faith, even when science says you ought not to, or how to use science to see God more clearly. We're just going to go a little bit deeper on the science side in season 10. And if you're a seeker, if you're a doubter, a seeker, an agnostic, an atheist, I want you to be able to come to this place and find some people talking about real things and find some hope, even if you're not sure what you believe about God or even if you think you don't believe in God. We're going to give you a place to ask honest questions and find answers. And it's going to be a place filled with hope. And I couldn't think of a more perfect guest for the last episode of season nine of the podcast than our guest today. We're going to wrap this up with a conversation that's really about one of the big questions that science has given us. A, a lot of people, if you, if you put yourself in a corner of saying, okay, we only believe in a material world and we have to use our scientific method to ask questions of a material world and not invoke anything supernatural to get to our answers, then that leads you into some uncomfortable places when you start thinking about the fact that you can think and you have to say, wait a minute, how does my brain, which is a bunch of cells and electrons and nerve impulses that some people think just evolved that way over millions of years, how does my brain generate what we call consciousness? And is consciousness even real? And do I really have free will? And is there really a mind inside my head that's separate and distinct from my brain that will persist after my death? And all those kinds of big questions and science has struggled to answer them. In fact, some scientists, famous people like Hippocrates, for example, said everything you are is your brain. Like there's nothing else about you other than your brain. You're all about your brain. Well, Sharon Dierks is a PhD who, who received her PhD from Cambridge University in brain imaging. She's right up my alley because she looks at functional MRI scans and asks big questions about what's happening in your brain and in your mind when you think about certain things and when you live your life in certain um, parts of your brain, what happens, how the networks come together and what cells are firing and what neurotransmitters are involved in different things. And she's had an incredible career. And somewhere along the way, she started asking some deeper questions that could be answered just from the science side. And she tried to smash faith and science together like we do here on our podcast. And she started writing books. And her first book was called Why? Looking at Evil and Personal Suffering. And that won several awards in the UK. It was a really successful book. And then in 2019, she wrote, Am I Just My Brain? 
And that's the book we're going to talk about today. Her most recent book is called Broken Planet. It's about suffering and natural disasters. Very fascinating book. But today, Sharon has joined us to talk about Am I Just My Brain? This mind-brain conundrum. And I'm here to tell you, friend, there's not a lot of hope to be found if you believe that everything about you and your entire life is a bunch of electrical impulses happening inside of neurons and there's no real concept of mind and there's nothing beyond the time you take your last breath, if there's just a big black void out there, there's not a lot of hope in that. And for years, Christians have had to think that they just had this wishful thinking that the scientists were all in agreement that there was nothing more to it. And if you were a Christian or a believer, you had to sort of bootstrap an ability to believe that in spite of what science told you was inevitably true. I'm here to tell you that the more we learn about physics and imaging and biology and, and everything that we can study and measure and test, the more questions we have. And the less certain those conclusions that the scientists had are. And we're going to give you some unbelievable conversations in the coming season with scientists who, like Michael Gillen recently, Dr. Michael Gillen, the cosmologist, astrophysicist. And we're going to have John Lennox coming up, who's a famous Oxford mathematician who's debated people like Richard Dawkins and and has, has really stood up for the faith. And today we have Sharon Dierks, who's doing the same work. Incredible. She's speaking and, and writing and appearing on a lot of podcasts. And she's just doing this apologetics meets science work that I'm so interested in and we're trying to do here too. And I think this conversation will give you a little insight into the fact that you are more than just your brain. You, my friend, are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's a mind inside you that's separate and apart from your brain that's generated by your creator, and it's the interface between how your creator... It's the interface with which your creator communicates with your brain. It's how thoughts become things. It's how you use your brain and your mind to their fullest created potential so that you can become happier and healthier and feel better in your life and how you can navigate and have resilience for hard things. And we're going to teach you all that because you need to know. You need to have no cognitive dissonance about the fact that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you are more than just your brain. And Sharon Dierks is going to help get that done as we finish season nine of the podcast. I'm going to take a little break. We're going to take a few days off here, so you won't have new content for a little bit. Um, we're going to start the Spiritual Brain Surgery podcast on Tuesday, the 30th of January, and that's going to be the first episode with Elisa Childers and, and Tim Barnett to talk about their um, really amazing new book, Deconstructing Christianity. So the first episode of the Spiritual Brain Surgery podcast will be in a couple of weeks. We're going to take a few days off from the podcast, reset. I've got some writing to do and some things I need to get done. So we're going to take a little break. I'll be giving you some older episodes so you'll still have some things hit your inbox and hit your uh, podcast listening apps so you won't won't have a void of things to listen to. I'll give you some carefully curated new things or old things to help you think about the new things that are coming, the things, things I want to be top of mind for you as we get into season 10 and as we get into spiritual brain surgery. But for now, we're going to take a little break. I'll let you know when we're coming back. It's going to be a couple of weeks before you have new content and we're going to be doing some work in the background that will really help season 10 blow you away we're going to have some of the most helpful content you've ever heard helpful and hopeful and healing so that we can change our minds and change our life before we get into sharon derrick's conversation today am i just my brain i just have one question for you my friend hey are you ready to change your life if the answer is yes there's only one rule 
You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. Are you ready to change your life? Well, this is the place, Self-Brain Surgery School. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and this is where we go deep into how we're wired, take control of our thinking, and find real hope. This is where we learn to become healthier, feel better, and be happier. This is where we leave the past behind and transform our minds. This is where we start today. Are you ready? This is your podcast. This is your place. This is your time, my friend. Let's get after it. We're back, and I'm so excited to be with you again today. We're going to do a little self-brain surgery around the conundrum of the mind and the brain. I've got an incredible guest with us today. Dr. Sharon Dierks is with us today, all the way from Oxford, England. Welcome, Sharon. Hi, it's great to be here. So glad that you took the time to be with us. And tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, so I, I live in Oxford with my um, husband and two children. Um, I have... A background in the sciences. I'm, I work now as a, uh, I guess, an apologist, speaker, communicator. But um, originally, I studied biochemistry. I um, came to faith while studying biochemistry um, and went on to do a PhD in brain imaging uh, using functional MRI, which is a way of looking inside the human brain without cutting into it. Um, and so I spent a decade in brain imaging before moving into this area of um, responding to people's objections and questions about the Christian faith. Um, so, yeah, that, that covers um, a few decades just there in those few few yeah. sentences. <laughs> what, it, what got you into so sort of moving from the science field and into writing about apologetics and faith and those kinds of things? What triggered that? Well, it started off by uh, my my kind of pivot from neuroscience into um, apologetics began with actually being in a lab in in uh, the states. Actually, I was doing a postdoc at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and um, I was having all kinds of conversations with people around me about the Christian faith, and I realised that I didn't necessarily know how to answer their questions and I wanted more training equipping myself so that took me actually to Oxford to study at the the centre that I ended up becoming um, part of and, and ended up working for and teaching on staff there for for 12 years and that was OCA the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics um, and so I, I received that training myself. And so it was born out of that, those kind of on the ground kind of gritty conversations with people who had questions. And then I realized, um, as I began to do that, that I really enjoyed speaking and communicating about these topics as well. And then that led me to think, well, um, maybe there's a case for writing about it as well, because books can go to places that we can't always get to. And it's a way of capturing something and capturing, you know, one's voice. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed and really had a sense of it being very right to, to write my first book, which was on personal suffering. 
And that was very much born out of our personal experiences of, of struggles with, with health, um, in, in yeah. uh, my marriage to Conrad. And so, um, yeah, that, that was kind of the beginning and, and then the other books have sort of come from there. So was there a moment, did you grow up in the church or in faith or did that happen later in your life? No, I didn't. Uh, I went to church maybe a handful of times uh, growing up. Uh, I knew virtually nothing about the Christian faith. Um, and really my first contact with Christianity was as a teenager, I went to a youth group in my hometown. And then later I went on to college, to university. And I think by the time I arrived there, I was probably an agnostic. I didn't really know what I believed. I didn't really think about it terribly much. But what I did know was that I was a scientist and I wanted to study the sciences. And so somewhere along the line, though, I had absorbed the view that um, science and God were not compatible. I wouldn't say that I'd actively made that decision, but I think we absorb all kinds of opinions from, you know, from books, from social media, yeah. from our friends, from magazines, and I had just absorbed this and I arrived at university with it. And I actually was invited to an event in the very first week called Grill a Christian, which was where there were four Christians and yeah. um, a room full of people. And you could ask them any question that you wanted. And, and so I listened to all of the questions other people were asking. And then I put my hand up and asked my own question. Surely you can't believe in God and be a scientist at the same time. And I was given the answer that, yes, you can, actually. That's a bit like saying that you need to choose between, you know, Bill Gates as the founder of Microsoft Office and the undergirding processes and process um, programs uh, beneath Microsoft Office yeah. that enable it to run. And, of course, you don't need to choose between those two explanations for why Office exists, but together they give a more complete understanding and they are kind of complementary and work in parallel. And so this was a game changer for me to realise that I didn't need to choose between my love of science and the possibility that God might be real. And that actually opened up a whole horizon it led me to grill a lot more Christians and ask yeah. a lot more questions. And over the course of the next 18 months, and it was in the middle of my second year that I didn't re think I had all of the answers. I didn't have all of my questions answered, but I knew enough about the person of Jesus Christ. I was persuaded about the reliability of the biographies that tell us about his life and was persuaded that he really did rise from the dead and decided to follow him. I was about 20 years old. Wow. And did the that pursuit of that knowledge, when you decided, you said that he was really risen from the dead, did your study of history and what history has to say about that come into that part of that understanding? Was it purely kind of a spiritual exercise? I, I began to read what I now know to be apologetics books. And this was kind of 30 years ago. So there was a lot less available and I'm in the UK. And, um, but I do remember reading about the number of manuscripts of the New Testament that there were and how we know we can trust them. And even historians who are not necessarily religious agree that the methods by which we can establish reliability and that these definitely apply to the New Testament. 
And I remember being really surprised and thinking, this feels like the world's best kept secret. Why, why hasn't anyone told me this earlier that this is not just mythical? It's not just kind of some nice ideas that one person had. And it's actually something that is really rooted in history and backed up by thousands of documents um, that you can trust. And so I was surprised. I was surprised that I hadn't heard that earlier. But I was glad that I did. That's amazing. I, and I'll just say for the listener, you know, we don't talk about it very often. I think we often assume that people listening to Christian content know this, but but the validity as a historical fact that there was a person named Jesus Christ and that people in his time believed him to have really been risen from the dead is astound, astonishing from a historical point of view. It's, it's well documented beyond, like Sharon just said, beyond things that we consider to be absolutely factual, like what Homer wrote and what Ulysses wrote. We have way more copies of those early manuscripts of Scripture than we do of those early Greek and and uh, historical documents. So that there's real evidence to believe that a person named Jesus Christ was crucified and in fact rose from the dead. That's astounding, as you said. So that's neat that you yeah. told that. It's, it's always fun when we do a podcast and we find ourselves going into areas that we weren't planning. <laughs> Different on, areas. That. So how did you end up going from a brain imaging expert? You have a PhD in brain imaging from Cambridge and you're looking at the brain and what the brain mm-hmm. does. And at some point you start to grapple with this big question of is, is what I consider to be me just a bunch of neural impulses inside of neurons, or is there more to it than that? How, how did you come to start grappling with this? Yeah. Well, so um, I spent a lot of time initially looking at the science and God question, because having a scientific background gave me a credibility. And then um, I began to just think about the area of neuroscience, which is a particular branch of the sciences. And, um, and, of course, the question of who we are, what a human being is, is coming up all the time in conversation, in the media, on social media. And it seemed like there was a need for uh, a response to that kind of question. But very often, human consciousness is this um, topic that seems very inaccessible, that it's too confusing, too hard to even think about. It's a mountain that's just too hard to climb. And so I thought, well, there's a need for a book that is accessible to the everyday person that can help them grapple with the key points in this conversation and I, I actually don't think you, you know, you don't need a PhD in philosophy or neuroscience to really get a handle on what's going on here because a lot of points can be made that are in the everyday. They're in our experience of the everyday. And so I really enjoyed boiling it down to its essential components and writing something I hope that is straightforward to read even if you don't consider yourself an expert in this area. It is. I shared with the listeners already that you wrote it in a way that anybody can access it and understand that the science is there, but it's not overpowering. I think you did a brilliant job of laying it out. And I love how you weaved in your faith in a way that's accessible too. Um, give us just a, I guess for somebody who hasn't read the book yet, and most of the listeners probably haven't read it, 
give us a an overview of the the viewpoint of some scientists that the mind is is just generated by the brain or that there's no such thing as mind at all. That's a pretty strong opinion out there in neuroscience. And then and then the mind maybe that mind and brain coexist or that one creates the other. And then and then what you believe about the about the matter. Yes. Um, well. Yeah, the, I mean, I think you hear quite a lot uh, that it that it's said that um, you know, uh, whenever you do something, this is your brain doing that thing, yeah. as if uh, um, and perhaps put a little bit more strongly, you know, there are people like um, uh, Francis Crick who would had, had you know was kind of famous for saying you're nothing but a pack of neurons that yeah. really everything that determines who you are, the choices you make, the personality ha- you have, the behaviors you exhibit. They're all driven by the, um, the, the chemicals and neurons inside of your skull. Um, but of course, um, that, that's only part of the picture because we don't just have a brain. We also have a mind. Yeah. Um, we have a sense of self. We have an inner reality. There's something that it is to be you that I can't access by measuring your brain. I have to ask you to kind of share with us what it is to be be you, but I can't be that you. You know, there's That's something right. distinctive about the mind um, that is not the same thing as the brain. Um, but of, of course, people that say those two things are synonymous are essentially saying there isn't anything that it is to be you. There's just brain activity, but that's kind of crazy it's also incoherent because the person right. expressing that view was saying my perspective on the world is that there is no first person perspective on the world which collapses into incoherence yeah. you can't um, and of, and we can't we don't live as though it's true we live as though we have a genuine meaningful first person experiential uh, interaction with the world um, that is to be noted and so there are many agnostics and atheists as well as Christian theists that argue that mind and brain are real and genuine and they are two very distinct things. Um, one of the reasons they believe that is because of something called qualia. Um, so perhaps a helpful qualia, and it's one that I talk about in the book, is a cup of coffee, the smell yeah. of coffee. Maybe you've had one this morning. I've had a couple you know, imagine that we live in a purely material universe and all that we have are physical descriptions. Then describe to me the smell of coffee. Well, you might offer me the chemical structure of caffeine and that would be very interesting, but it doesn't get me any closer to the smell of coffee. Or you might describe to me the physiology as you drink it and digest it. Um, that would be interesting, but it doesn't get me any closer to the smell of coffee. And so the point being that if you want to know what coffee smells like, you need to smell it. Yeah. There's actually no other way to access this phenomenon. And there's no physical description that gets you there. And philosophers of many faiths and all faiths and no faith agree that, you know, um, physical descriptions can't capture what it is to be us because the biggest qualia of all is the experience of being you or of me being me. Um, And measuring our brain does not give us that uh, access to that phenomenon. And so there are 
other ways of describing the mind-brain relationship that maybe help us have a more holistic approach to what it means to be a human being and that perhaps help us make better sense of what we see in the clinic. And I'm sure as a as a neurosurgeon, you've seen some very interesting things yeah. in, in clinically. And I think that's one of the most powerful sets of data in this in this case to say that we are so much more than just our brains because people are strange <laughs> and yes, they they, they and actually clinically they they can do some very interesting things but anyway before we even get to that um you know in the book i didn't end up saying here is my position on this i i decided in the process of writing the book to say look here's why a purely physicalist approach to human beings doesn't work, that we are way more than our brains. And here's a variety of other ways of describing the mind-brain relationship that work better than this one. And I, I leave that kind of choice up to the reader because I don't know that we can actually nail it down to one particular position. But But just by way of summary, some people say that, you know, uh, the mind, the brain generates the mind, that the mind emerges from the brain somehow. Yeah. But of course, um, so, you know, uh, uh, when a number of building blocks come together, something new comes into being that is greater than the sum of its parts. And that's interesting. Uh, and, um, but the, the question that people holding that view have to answer is, how on earth do you get uh, mind from non-conscious neurons? You still come right. up against this problem of you've got human consciousness from a non-conscious system of atoms and molecules. That's right. Um, but there are some Christians that hold this view, and they argue, well, we don't just have atoms and molecules in the equation. If God exists, then there's more going on than simply non-conscious neurons because God exists. So that's how they would get around that. And then there's the position that the mind is beyond the brain, that we actually have a physical brain and a non-physical mind. Right. And this is known as substance dualism. And so proponents of this would say that actually, yeah, there's, there's a non-physical realm as well as physical realm. Um, but those two interact very closely. But of course, proponents of that view have to wrestle with the challenge of how on earth does a non-physical mind do that? And how do we, how do we reconcile that with neuroscience, which is showing these two things to be so closely integrated, which they are. And then there's another view that says that um, everything is conscious, even, you know, uh, human beings, of course, animals have levels of consciousness, but there are also conscious properties, even down to the atomic scale and electrons and quarks and so on, yeah. that their kind of consciousness is kind of, kind of infused into the cosmos and into matter itself. And this is a view called panpsychism, which comes from the Greek pan meaning all and suke meaning soul. And that's a very, uh, a growing view. Um, more and more people are talking about this. Um, but of course, the, the challenge that panpsychists have to answer is how do you explain the very different levels of consciousness that 
human beings seem to have even compared with the most advanced primates. There seems to be something qualitatively different about the kind of consciousness that that human beings have. How do you explain that? Yeah. So every view has its challenges. I think this is this interesting thing. I thought there's a scripture in First Corinthians. I can't remember where it is right now, but he says, "When someone thinks they know something, they do not yet know as they ought to know." And I yes. think what we're learning from science is that the more we drill down into something the more questions we find instead of, yeah. oh, now we understand. I think materialism right. basically thought that eventually we would get to some place where we could explain everything with science. So we, would, we would know everything that could be known, and then the, yeah. we would understand why the brain did what it did and all of that. Right. But instead, as the quantum physicists have started to teach us, like the mind is non-local. Like there, There's a lot of connections between my mind and your mind, and, and electrons yes. can be entangled with one another across vast distances and faster than the speed of light, all these crazy things that, that the quantum yes. physicists have come up with. And I think what it does is it shows us deeper and deeper insights into the mind of God and how he created us. Mm. And, and I'm just fascinated the more we learn. And I think brain imaging has just yeah. sort of taken the lid off of a little bit of that and allowed us to say, wow, we didn't know as much as we thought we yeah. knew. Right. And I think that um, what the science has, um, tells us is that mind and brain are connected and they're connected very closely. You know, if you put yeah. someone in an MRI scanner and ask them to use their mind, what do you see light up? Networks in their brain. Of course, right. these two things are connected. But the mistake that's often made is that people extrapolate that to say because they're connected, they must be synonymous or one must create the other. But in making that judgment, we've actually moved out of the domain of the sciences and into philosophy where right. we're taking a philosophical position and imposing that back on the data. You know, I, I saw one time on the cover of Scientific American. Uh, it said how the mind arises as this very attractive strapline and network interactions in the brain create thought. Right. But actually, there's no scientific study that can tell you that network interactions create thought. That's right. Um, that's a philosophical statement that's been imposed upon the data. And this is happening all the time. And I think one of our um, roles as kind of thinkers and, and philosophers in, in this world is to discern when is that a scientific statement that's empirically derived or is that actually philosophy and that's my philosophical position that i'm imposing yeah so this is a that's fascinating right. area it's where we slip from science into scientism like sort of the religion of science and how we think we think yeah. we know things and how science can explain yeah. all knowledge eventually i think that's the, that's the difference is, is we we redefine terms and we start calling What's really the the religion of science, we call it science, which we mean when you and I talk about that, we mean a, a method of coming to know things by testing and refining hypotheses and asking questions and being honest with our assessments and all that. But we've yeah. turned it into a religion of its own where we start with a presupposition that materialist put all, you know, right. materialism explains everything that there is. And now yes. the more we learn, the more we question. I think, I think it's beautiful yes. how you've done it. And ultimately, how does this study for you reinforce and grow your faith? And, and what can you say to somebody mm. out there who might be a little bit of a doubter or a little bit on the fence? Like as a person who's yeah. worked into this deeply as a scientist, like how does this booster your faith, bolster your faith? Well, I would say that, um, you know, at the end of all of this, 
The question that science could never answer and was not intended to answer is why on earth are we conscious in the first place? Why do we think at all? And I even remember asking that question myself as a like a 10, 12 year old, one rainy day looking out of the window. I began, I became aware of my own consciousness. Why do I exist? Why am I here? And, you know, those questions do bubble to the surface sometimes in us. Um, and, and actually, you know, if there is no God and if the material world is all that there is, then what explanation do we have for, for why we can think? Um, and I suppose where it lands with, with that view is that somehow conscious human beings have arisen from a non-conscious universe. Yeah. And that's not impossible, but it's kind of surprising. You know, it's kind of not consistent with the starting conditions. But if God exists, then we've actually lived in a conscious universe all along. Because God is a conscious community of Father and Son and Holy Spirit and and has actually made human beings in his image. And so we can have a very clear um, and um, helpful response to the question, why can we think? Well, we can think because God is a thinker. Which is another reason why your ministry and my ministry and all all kinds of other ministries of people really trying to dig down and think about matters actually really matter. Um, because God thinks and God is a conscious thinking being that has created humans to be like him. Uh, and so why can we think? Because God exists and we, we are able to think these higher thoughts so that ultimately we can know him. You know, we're the only creatures arguably that are capable of that higher rational thinking and asking big questions. Why we, why are we here? Yeah. I believe that that's because God's made us to know him and he's searching for us and we search for him, whether we necessarily realize it or not. And that's because God is real and he knows us and loves us and he can be known by us because we are conscious thinking beings. Wow, that's beautiful. I I can't, listener, I can't encourage you highly enough to read this book, Am I Just My Brain? We we talk on this podcast all the time, Sharon, about the the fact that the work of people like uh, Newber, Andrew Newberg and Jeffrey Schwartz have mm-hmm. shown us that you can change your brain by changing the things you think about. There's this fascinating mm. work on uh, looking at the hippocampi, the volume of the hippocampus and people who pray and meditate. And it gets bigger when you change how you think. And I, I, I've drawn the analogy of, you know, I have an old iPhone, it's an iPhone 11. And I can plug it in <laughs> at night and it can do a software update. But when it when I wake up the next morning, it has new software, but it's still an iPhone 11. It, it hasn't changed yeah. the hardware. But our brains... We can change the hardware. We can change the structure of our brains by changing the way we think, the things that we think about and how we think about them. And so yeah. what does that say to you I mean, as a neuroscientist? Like, how do you, how yeah. do you reconcile the fact that the mind can actually change the structure of the brain? Yeah. I mean, this is another argument for why we are way more than just our brains. It's not just one way traffic that your brain drives your mind and that's it. End of story. Actually, as yeah. you just said, the mind is powerful 
in its impact on the brain. And this is a phenomenon known as downward causation that a lot of neuroscientists talk about and um, that it's actually an argument for why the mind is just as important as the brain. And, and in fact, as you say, it can bring about changes in the physical brain. Um, and um yeah, I think that it's a, it's a it's an argument for for why the brain isn't the whole story, and we see it also in things like the placebo effect. Yeah, you know where your um, beliefs about a supposed drug that you're receiving can have a therapeutic benefit to you, even if it's a, a placebo, because of what you believe to be true about it, and. We also see it in things like psychosomatic illness or phantom yeah. limb pain is another fascinating area, you know, where right. um, there's kind of severe pain in a part of the body that has actually been removed. And um, the mind is a powerful and mysterious thing that, that can't be necessarily pinned down. And, and of course, um, you know, Andrew Newberg um, and Jeffrey Schwartz have done fascinating work on, as you say, what happens in the brain when you pray. And, and this is not data that we need to be afraid of either, That's that right. just because there are studies showing brain networks that are active during all kinds of meditation and prayer doesn't mean that that undermines the validity of that that prayer. Um, just like, um, you know, if you were to scan the brain of somebody uh, about their love of chocolate, you would see all kinds of network interactions, activated reward centers firing and, and similarly areas, uh, similar areas to when you're in love. There are all kinds of networks in the brain that light up that are associated with romantic love. But that doesn't mean that the experience of love isn't genuine. We come back to this qualia, you yeah. know, the experience is very different to the networks that the two are correlated, but they are distinct phenomena. And of course, we wouldn't question the validity of the relationship itself. In fact, the existence of the relationship is why there is activity in the first place. And so, this kind of data is not data that we need to be afraid of or, or shy away from. It's actually kind of confirming what the Bible says, which is yeah. that we are physical and spiritual beings. We're integrated, holistic, physical and spiritual beings. Um, and uh, that's a that's a great thing. Um, we should be more that's concerned right. if there was nothing happening in our brain when we're praying. That's really. Right. I find it I find it highly encouraging. You know, Paul told us two thousand years ago that hey, if you want to be less anxious, then pray and be thankful. And now we know from neuroscience, for example, that when you're anxious, your hippocampus short circuits down to the amygdala and gets that fight, flight, freeze thing happening in a, in a very direct pathway. But when you're engage gratitude and things like prayer and gratitude, the circuit goes to the frontal lobe and gets yeah. your thinking involved and, and calms things down and lets you make executive decisions before you decide what emotion means, right? So it's, it's, it, to me, it, it says that the scripture told us what was going to happen in the neuroscience and why it was helpful mm. to us thousands of years ago. It's, it's corollary yes. to me. I love it. Well, and also Romans um, 12, be transformed by the renewing right. of your mind. There's neuroplasticity right there. 
you know, that there's kind yeah. of, um, or even cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, that the thinking that the thoughts you have has a really tangible impact on who you are. Um, and of course, neuroscience tells us that the brain is very, very plastic and it can change for the better or for the worse throughout our life. It's not a fixed thing once we reach adulthood. It's very That's plastic. Right. We tell our people you can't change your life until you change your mind. And it's because we've learned yeah. and you've, you've helped us see now that the things we think about turn into the things we are and affect the way our brains work. And tell us a little bit about your other two books before we go. Oh, yeah. Um, so my first book uh, was written in 2013, and that was about personal suffering. Um, both books, such, and my second, my, my most recent book is about natural disasters. So a particular form of suffering, uh, how do we explain earthquakes and hurricanes, yeah. tsunamis, and so on. Both books use the format of um, combining personal stories with apologetics arguments. So you've got that combination of appealing to the head and the heart and looking at arguments and reasons, but also at people's actual lives. And any reasons that we give have to be able to land in the gritty reality of life as well. Um, and so with Broken Planet in particular, many of the stories, uh, some of them have come from North America, or they have been, um, well, they've come from people who have experienced natural disasters like wildfires, um, hurricanes, tsunami, earthquakes, locust infestations, and also pandemics, which is a form of natural disaster yeah. um, that came to us all, actually. Sometimes we experience the cataclysmic ones from a bit of a you know, far away from a distance, but the pandemic came close to everybody. Yeah. Um, and so I have written very specifically to this form of the question of suffering. If God has created the natural world, then why has he made it the way that he has, such that we are caught up in these events and suffer and die? And there are lots of things we can say on that Um which I unpack in Broken Planet. Well, I'm so grateful that you're writing and that you're doing the work that you're doing. It's uh, already helping me, and I think this book is going to make an impact for our listeners. I, I just can't thank you enough for your time here today, Sharon. Thank you so much, Lee. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here, and thank you for your ministry as well. Absolutely. God bless you. What a great conversation. I'm so honored and thankful that Sharon took the time to be with us. And I told you that was going to be a mind-bending conversation. You're not just a bunch of cells, friend. You didn't just evolve out of the sludge into some organism that somehow attained something that you believe is consciousness. So you are an incredible, well-designed, well-constructed, ever-changing, ever-healing, ever-improving structure that your creator has made you in his image he made you so that you could think and communicate with him, with your mind, and that you could use your mind to improve the health and the function of your brain, that you could take charge and dominion over your genetics through the magic, the, the incredible gift of epigenetics, that you can engage your frontal lobes for selective attention so that you can stop thinking about harmful, repetitive, automated things, and you can create new synapses. You can harness Hebb's law and the quantum Zeno effect and make new structural connections between different parts of your brain. You can improve the function of the networks of your brain. You can change your mind 
and thereby change your life. I'm so thankful that Sharon took the time to help us. Hey, I want to thank Abigail from The Good Book Company, the publicist that helped arrange this podcast, Abigail Talbot, and the incredible work that they're doing over at The Good Book Company. And we have, amazingly, they've donated three copies of Sharon's book, Am I Just My Brain, that we'll be able to give away to listeners. So the good folks up at The Good Book Company, Abigail and Tim Thornborough as well over in the UK, made this interview and the one coming up with John Lennox possible. So if you'd like to have a copy of Sharon Dierick's incredible book, Am I Just My Brain, send me an email, lee at drleewarren.com, with your name and your mailing address, and we'll choose three names out of that list of people that write in to receive a copy of her book from the Good Book Company. Get that book in your hands. It'll be really helpful, especially if you know somebody who's kind of interested in science but also trying to figure out how faith and science fit together. This would be a great gift for somebody like that. It's a, it's a well-written, it's accessible, it's not over your head. Even if you're not into science at all, Sharon did a beautiful job of writing it on a level that anybody can understand these big concepts about mind and brain and neuroscience and philosophy and theology. It's just, it's beautiful. They actually shed some tears during the last chapter of this book. She did such a great job of doing exactly what we're trying to do here, smashing faith and science together. Really, really well done. And so if you'd like a copy, please send me an email, lee at drleewarren.com. Do not leave your address in a comment somewhere that I have to hopefully find. I need you to send me an email. They're going to get a lot of people writing in for this book, so don't make extra work for me. Send me your name and your mailing address with your zip code to lee at drleewarren.com, and we'll choose three of those winners to send over to the Good Book Company, and Abigail will send you a book. God bless you, friend. I'm so grateful for the ground that we've covered here in Season 9. I am more excited about season 10 than I've ever been excited about anything. And the new spiritual brain surgery podcast, I think is going to really, really be a powerful place for us to get together and get to know our creator even more intimately through the magic, through the incredible gift. I keep saying magic because it feels like magic to me, how he's made us. But of course it's not. It's just the incredible skill of our designer, creator, God how we're put together and we're going to smash all that together in season 10 and in the spiritual brain surgery podcast in a new way we're going to open your eyes heal your heart help you find hope and we'll get after it all but before we do any of that you get to start today hey thanks for listening the dr lee warren podcast is brought to you by my brand new book hope is the first dose it's a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, and other massive things. It's available everywhere books are sold, and I narrated the audiobooks. Hey, the theme music for the show is Get Up by my friend Tommy Walker, available for free at TommyWalkerMinistries.org. They are supplying worship resources for worshipers all over the world to worship the Most High God. And if you're interested in learning more, check out TommyWalkerMinistries.org. If you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarnmd.com slash prayer wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer and go to my website and sign up for the newsletter Self Brain Surgery every Sunday since 2014 helping people in all 50 states and 60 plus countries around the world. I'm Dr. Lee Warren and I'll talk to you soon. Remember friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind and the good news is you can start today. <laughs>